This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Hello, and welcome to RSC Stories Podcast. My name is Ian Cosden, and I will be the guest host of a special RSC Stories today. This is an exciting episode because I have the very special honor of speaking with a guest that needs no introduction. You know her as the founder of RSC Stories, Vanessa Socket. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. Yay, thanks, Ian. Very excited to be here and being on the other side of the microphone. How does that feel? You know, this has been a really interesting experience because I am literally sort of in the shoes of my guests and I got kind of nervous. Last night I was thinking about it. I was staying up trying to imagine what you're going to ask me. I need to think about that a little bit because I definitely don't want my guests to be nervous. And I'm curious now what percentage of the guests that I've interviewed were actually nervous. If you want to nervous, how about being the host of someone who's done this 50 times? (laughs) You'll be okay. Don't worry. (laughs) After years of being at Stanford, I know you just started a new position as a computer scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Can you tell us about it, what you're up to and what you're working on that excites you right now? That is correct. I'm a computer scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And that was sort of a weird transition because, and we can talk about this a little bit, I think national labs have always had software engineers have had these RSEs as sort of first class citizens. So they've never really needed the initiative or the role. So for me, it was kind of awkward feeling very strongly RSC to go into a new position and not really be called an RSC, but something else. But when you look at the actual core of work that I'm doing, it's very development oriented. And this is another distinction I kind of want to point out. I found it interesting that the work that I associate with research software engineering from Stanford or sort of just when people generally talk about it is very service oriented. So you're doing work on behalf of the scientists. You work closely with a lab. Maybe you're embedded in a lab. And that is like your prime goal is to provide this service to build software for the scientists. But I find that the work that I'm doing at the lab is very almost research about software. It is truly research software engineering because it's just focusing on innovating and developing software. Of course, with the end user in mind, you know, we want to make package managers faster and more efficient, but I'm not directly working with, for example, a biology lab and making scientific workflows for them. So I have found that really interesting. And I think it's more in line with sort of my core passion, which has always been this generalist technology, like containers, APIs, standards, stuff that is extremely unsexy in science that like it would be really hard, at least as a researcher, to get a grant for or to publish an article in a science magazine because people are just like, okay, yeah, that's uh, that sounds very technical. Uh, I guess uh, this article about cancer is much more interesting to me. <laughs> So overall, I love it so far. To kind of give you a sense of what I'm working on, I'm looking at modeling ABI compatibility for containers. So that generally refers to the application binary interface. And the best way to describe it is that when you have a binary, you can actually look at the binary. There's different sort of headers where you can find these mangled strings that basically get at what the function signatures are, the types, and that sort of thing. So if you have two different binaries and one uses the other or one links to the other and you say, will these two things work together? You can basically look at these mangled strings, these ABI corpora, and get an answer to that quickly. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to see if we can use these corpora as metadata or features to basically advise a solver. So a solver specifically being SPAC, we've had several people on the show talk about SPAC. 
that's my focus. I'm also building a database and application so that we can run a million different SPAC installs and capture all this metadata and I'm doing a little bit of C++, which is something I haven't done, which is really super cool. I think this is the beginning of my fourth week. I'm finally kind of settling into a new routine, but you know, we were talking about this before the show started. That definitely takes time. And I, I am metaphorically still kind of walking around in the dark and bumping into appliances. This leads me to a thought that your background uh, is in biomedical informatics. Is that right? That was your PhD? That's and correct. Now here you are, this computer science, RSE, looking back, do you feel like in with the rearview mirror, you were always destined to be an RSE or was there something that kind of led you to this, to where you are now? I think this is really important to talk about. I do have a non-traditional background and I think this is probably the right time for me to kind of go back and tell a little bit of my story, where I came from, how I sort of stumbled around. Probably we should start around college. So in college, I had quite a bit of medical adversity and the typical things like heartbreak. And I was just sort of focused on finishing, you know, getting a degree. No one sort of was there that says, oh, Vanessa, you should be studying STEM and, you know, you want to get internships. I knew that all these other kids around me were doing research and they had these really fantastic resumes. I was kind of just getting by and playing a lot of World of Warcraft. (laughs) So by the time I graduated, I didn't know what I loved to do. I knew that I was, I needed to ask these questions about like, what gives me meaning, what makes me happy, but I didn't really have a passion. I was always a competitive runner and I had left competitive running. So I had sort of lost a part of my identity in that sense. So when I graduated, I was looking around for a job and there was a job in a neuropsychology lab, the new PI that was just coming to Duke that summer. His name was Ahmad Hariri. His name still is Ahmad Hariri. He's still there. And he was looking for an RA and he wanted the RA to be good with computers. And I was like, well, you know, I, I play a lot of computer games. I remember using MS-DOS when I was a kid and I made some websites. I could go in there and interview and convince him that I'm like the right person to hire for this job. So I I did that. And amazingly, I I got this first job. It was this amazing experience because it didn't just impact me in terms of learning, but also in terms of how I thought about like what it means to just be employed. So I remember very clearly, I showed up my first day, like bright and early and Ahmad was there in his office. I was like, okay, so you just want me to be working in here in this chair from, you know, nine to five. And mom was like, oh yeah, V, well, I mean, you can come into the lab when you need to be here, but otherwise like you can work where you want. And it was like this epiphany, like, wow, this academic thing, like I have a lot of freedom for my time because before that I was just really used to working, sitting at a desk like all day. I I just couldn't imagine that that was something that I would have to do for the rest of my life. So I started uh, with a mod and he basically said, okay, V, you know, we got this data, we got this supercomputer cluster and here's the software FSL for analyzing brain images, just go figure it out. And this was awesome for me to do because I learned for the first time how I like to learn, which wasn't something I really thought about because in college, you just have to go to class and you do problem sets and you kind of, you're expected to learn in that particular way. But I realized that I'm very good at learning by having something that I need to do presented to me and then just like needing to figure it out. I needed to write scripts 
I didn't know what a script was, but I had another epiphany when I realized like if I go to this terminal thing and I type a bunch of commands and I put them in a text file, like I'd written a script, like it was, it was that simple. In those two years, I was able to kind of teach myself bash and shell. I picked up Python. I'll never forget. There was a postdoc in the lab by me named Mikkel Carter. who was like, do you know Python? And I was like, snakes, like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> he also showed me MATLAB. I, Another moment that just like blew my mind is I was used to looking at brain images in like an interface, like a pretty picture of a brain. And he took this brain map and he loaded it into MATLAB and this just stream of numbers like flew across the screen. And I was like, oh my God, it's this picture is a matrix of numbers. And so I can do stuff to these numbers and manipulate them. After being in this job, going into my second year, I kind of kept running into situations where I felt like I was missing something in my tool belt. Like I wanted to do something and I couldn't do it because I didn't have the background of training and I'd be like, oh, darn. And it became very apparent to me very quickly that it was the time to try to go to grad school. Like I had things I wanted to learn. I, at that point, I don't think I could have told you that whether I loved programming more or research because they were both very intertwined, but I applied, I was looking for very sort of interdisciplinary programs between like neuroscience, or I guess in the case of Stanford informatics, and then also software engineering kind of stuff. So I remember interviewing and oh my gosh. So there were so many impressive people there. And I knew they were only going to accept six. And I was like, there was no way they're going to accept me. Here's like this kid sitting next to me. He's like found the cure for cancer. And this other kid here has published like many papers. I have like not the right background. And I was just totally flabbergasted when I got in. Oh my God, I found something I think I love and I'm going in this direction. I'm super excited. So Grad school at Stanford was in biomedical informatics. And you can generally think about that as like taking some domain of science. So in my case, it was neuroscience and then combining it with informatics. My work in grad school wound up being using a lot of functional and structural data for the brain and doing different projects with machine learning for it. I had a, also a hard time in grad school. The first two years, you have to take your courses and your qualifying exam. And I had trouble because I couldn't find the right advisor. My first advisor was great, but he didn't really remember what I would tell him every week. And we didn't really have much of a community. So I moved to a second advisor. I turned out to have a really stressful experience with, and I'll, I'll mention it briefly because I think a lot of grad students have traumatic experiences in graduate school where they're sort of questioning their self-worth and whether they've made the right decision in doing it in the first place. So I had one of those experiences, but ultimately I was just so blessed that my eventual final advisor, Russ Poldrack, came to Stanford and I had actually been talking to him and going to him to get feedback on my work. And so then when I had this sort of fallout with my previous advisor, I basically said, hey, can I join your lab? And he said, of course you can. It wasn't an issue of funding. I was funded by NSF and graduate fellowships. And after that, I just totally flourished. I like published papers. I finished a totally new thesis in like a year and a half. I wound up doing a bunch of other projects to help other grad students. And that was sort of the time. So maybe at the end of 2014, early 2015, that is when I discovered containers. Specifically, I discovered Docker containers and using them to develop these little local web servers and that, that kind of thing that my lab was working on. They just felt magic, you know, like shelling into this other world. It, it meant that I could develop multiple things at the same time. 
it, it just felt like the technology that we were using and the software and stuff on our research clusters was just so hard. I couldn't use Docker on the cluster. I couldn't use containers. That led very naturally into having conversations with the head of research computing and ultimately putting together this position for what we at the time called a reproducibility engineer. And I actually called it an academic software developer. And I noted, and this was like back in 2016, I was like, why don't we have a layer of software engineers over the university that are just there to help researchers write code and to work on containerization and all these things that like are not supported or funded currently. I wasn't sure if I could have a large impact, but I decided that I would stay at Stanford and take on this reproducibility engineer position. And just like, like my goal at the time was just like, I'm just gonna get containers on the cluster. If I get containers on the cluster, that means I'm gonna be successful. I stayed at Stanford. I was very heavily working on Singularity itself for I think maybe until the end of 2017, I developed and deployed Singularity Hub which, and I just, I loved it. I fell in love with open source and I kind of stepped back when Singularity became maintained by a company because they had hired software engineers to do it. And then I focused on the work for the labs that were funding me. And also I eventually found other interesting kind of projects to work on out in the wild, like working on SnakeMake and that was done through Google. And all this time though, I absolutely loved my time at Stanford. I loved my job, everything about it. Here comes the but. But there was always this stress in the back of my mind because I didn't really have job security. It was always up to me in the conversation I had over and over with my supervisors, how are we going to recover your funding? And so whether it was kind of moving to a new lab or finding a new project or eventually creating RSC services, which I did in my last year, there was always that stress like, well, am I going to be funded next year, especially with COVID? Is this going to go away? What if my supervisor retires? What is going to become of me? And the other kind of thing that was always on my mind is the fact that I didn't really have a team. I wasn't on like a team of software engineers working on specific projects. I felt like this thing that didn't belong in my group because I wasn't, I wasn't a system administrator. And so I always had this kind of, I guess I call it FOMO, a fear of missing out that maybe there could be a place for me somewhere where I would have a team and I'd have job security and I would have kind of this confidence that I would be growing and progressing and becoming a better engineer over the years. By the time it was the end of just last year and this opportunity came up for me to work on this project, I had a, a meeting with the head of the project, Todd Gamblin. And I first was really taken aback because he's like, oh, you know, you could just come and work here. And at the time I said, oh no, I, I love being at Stanford. It's COVID and I have a job. Why would I give that up? Some people don't have jobs. But ultimately it kind of crept up on me that fear of missing out again. And I, I was like, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt to just interview and talk to people. And that just did it for me. After I talked to teams and I talked about what they're working on, I was like, my God, like, I want this so bad. Like I will grow as an engineer. And I realized I was becoming complacent in my role at Stanford, which I think is one of the most dangerous things is to become complacent in your job. And I wanted to avoid that. That's the basic story. I think I left Stanford. I did make an impact in terms of giving a, lots of talks about the importance of research software engineering. I created RSC services, which hopefully can still pick up. They hire someone to replace me. And I also made very good progress with HR to actually define this official role of an RSC. That's great. So it sounds like you've left a bit of a legacy at Stanford. 
Hopefully, I, I'd really like to see that role be accepted. And then maybe post COVID, it just has to start small with like a little bit of funding, hire another RC, slowly build a group. I, I definitely think the community is there and the need is there. You know, I, I think I probably went about this wrong in just creating RC services and then offering it to people. I think the right way to go about it would be to go to the different labs, present this idea of funding some kind of shared RC and then building up enough of that to then hire a person and then you know, kind of interacting with the labs more directly than I did. And that would have been very hard for me because I was a full-time remote employee after early 2018. What I was just going to say was it sounds like there was some grassroots type support out there, but this was going to require a lot of work to yeah. build and sort of culturally shift the thinking into supporting this type of career path, it wasn't about the technical work. It was about the institutional fit, the people, and how to support people like this. Did you see a path forward? Was it going to be? I think that was spot on. I think I realized that to really be successful with RSC services, I needed to be there in person. I needed to be going to labs and talking to people and connecting people. I needed to be not just sort of a champion from far away, but I needed to be a champion, like very present in all these different things that were going on at Stanford. What really was needed is someone that wanted to take on more of a managerial role to really figure out how to get funding and how to put together this group of RSEs. And that wasn't what I wanted. I wanna be a great engineer. Call me a computer scientist, it doesn't matter, we're engineers. I wanna be a great engineer and going in the direction of being a manager is just not what my heart wanted. So I wasn't sure about that 2019 when I put all my energy into trying to make it a thing at Stanford. But by the end of 2020, I had come to this realization and it was good because it meant that I could kind of move on to the next step without looking back and saying, did I make the wrong decision? I think self-introspection is, is really important for these things. And I think research software engineering will come to Stanford. It wasn't going to be me to be the person to champion manager to do that. At some point, you must have known I wanted to talk about this and your community efforts in, in the broader research software engineer space, specifically this podcast. How'd you come up with the idea? What started RSE Stories? Oh, gosh. I have to say, I can't remember how I heard of USRC. I know that someone had pointed me to the UK group at the end of grad school. And I was like, well, I'm not in the UK. That's not going to help me. But I found USRC in 2019. I remember joining the Slack and be like, hi, everyone. I'm Vanessa. I like containers and APIs and all this great stuff. And it was just amazing because I felt like I found my people. I found other people out there that were in a similar position to me, that liked similar things. I felt like I wasn't alone. And so because of that, I got pretty excited about helping the community to grow. And this kind of stems from something that I've just learned slowly over the years. You know, when I started, I used to think that like, okay, if I'm going to be a great software engineer, then I have to be like just great technically. And I've realized over the years that so much about everything is about people. That's why doing initiatives in the community that maybe are a little bit more fun as opposed to just figuring out the policy, those are equally important. 
And so really early on, I helped out a lot, of course, with the website. I made the little graph that shows how it's growing over time that automatically updates itself. The USRC community map that shows where everyone is. So specifically for RC stories, I started to notice that there were some very prominent members of the community that would, for example, give talks and say, this is what an RC is. It's on this continuum between researcher and software engineer. And I kind of scratched my head and I was like, you know, I guess that can describe a lot of RCs, but doesn't really feel like it fits with my experience. My gosh, what about this person over here that does like web development? What about this person that's more user support or documentation? It felt like a very limited definition. So my first attempt to work on this, I actually made a, a little YouTube video, like the story of the research software engineer. I tried to kind of like describe the types as I saw, them. forget there's like maybe seven or eight types. That was good, but I looked at that and I was like, oh, this is like a fail because this is also biased based on my experience. And I remember waking up a morning in September and being like, oh my God, if I want to share experiences about what it means to be an RC, why don't I just ask RCs? I think that's exactly the same day that I contacted you. I, I thought that you would be open to the idea and you might be the first one that I could interview on the show. It just took off from there. And you know, in retrospect, I did not think about how much time and energy it takes to make a podcast. Audio editing, one episode where there's a lot of verbal tics or the person speaks quickly can take like eight hours. Recording it takes an hour. My extra weekend time where I used to just work on fun little projects became audio editing time. But I quickly realized how it was having an impact on the community, how many people were appreciating it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this as long as I feel like it's important and it, and it needs to be done. And in 2020, sometime in the middle, Peter, my, my co-host, just appeared out of nowhere. And he's like, hey, I'd like to help out. And that was great because I love his hosting style. It, it's very different than mine. It adds this kind of diversity to the podcast. And that then kind of made me think further and be like, you know, what would it take for this to be a true community podcast? Maybe if I just keep trying to recruit people, maybe we can have like a whole bunch of hosts from like everywhere internationally that add this different perspective as a host. Because if you, if you kind of listen to hosts, we ask, I guess, similar kinds of questions. That's my hope for RC stories. I've decreased the frequency that I'll release episodes because because <laughs> I have a new job and, you know, I can't spend the same amount of time, but I, I still recognize that it's super important. And the RC community is still also a huge part of my identity. I don't see, you know, changing job, meaning that I'm like, see you later, guys. Good luck in life. I'm out. I'm glad you mentioned the effort. I mean, this clearly is a significant amount of time to put together something as consistently good as RC stories. And, and I can say now, having been in the host chair for a little bit, it's not that bad. So Maybe we put out a vocal call for other volunteer hosts who can come in and help see this into the future and provide a long-term sustainability model for RSC stories. Because from where I sit, I think it is a terrific thing to give, give some depth to the people that are in this profession. And for a career that we're trying to evolve and be a first-class member of the research workflow and ecosystem, I think this has been a really terrific initiative. The way I kind of think about it is that for one person to do all the recording and all the editing, it's an enormous amount of work, but imagine if you had 12 hosts and maybe each person did an episode a month and then maybe that same person edited, maybe someone else edited. Surprisingly, I've found that a lot of people like don't mind editing, even though they don't want to host. 
it would just be really easy. Uh, I think the challenge is just that finding people where you're basically asking them to do work for free. That's a hard ask. I'll leave it at that. I'm curious, you're in a very unique position of having a chance to talk to RSEs in depth. Have you noticed any kind of trends or what individual traits or personalities that seem to gravitate towards this field? Like taking a step back, what can you say about research software engineers as a whole? I've noticed that a lot of RSEs, they loved being a part of the research process. They loved writing code, but they weren't driven by finding the answer to some, you know, burning question about, for example, how the brain works or how biology works. And then they find themselves in this position where they still want to be a part of it, but they don't know where their place is. That's something that I've definitely commonly heard. Also, a lot of people have epiphanies about the value of people, about how you can look at all these very complicated technical problems, but really at the end of the day, dealing with people is the most challenging thing. And aside from that, I've been surprised how different the kinds of work are that I've seen. So I've seen being an RC and working on visualizations for like farms or or farming, this kind of data that I, I didn't even know that was a thing sort of more traditional talking about Fortran, uh, C++, kind of like HPC, that kind of thing. And then lots of involvement in open source. It's really hard to, to answer this question of like, what is an RSC? What are these common trends? Because I think the role is just so diverse. That's like the one question that you'd have a really hard time answering. I want to go back to something you said right at the beginning, which was that you had this non-traditional way of, of ending up here and this non-traditional path. But I mean, is it almost safe to say that, is there a traditional path? I don't think so. I think there could be some, imagine in the future that we're living in a time where an RSC is actually an accepted part of this academic fabric. I could definitely see programs realizing that and then maybe having a, a track to lead someone to becoming an RSC as opposed to like a postdoc and then a PI. But I think we're really far away from that. I think so too. But do you think that, could there be a concern? Would that be as effective as kind of finding your own path? I know it's not necessarily efficient, but those of us that the story you described about having a research background describes me and and, and the love for writing code, will we I lose something by having direct curriculum for RSCs? That's a good question. I think the problem with the way it is now is that there's so many opportunities to be discouraged and to just go and do something else. A lot of people that are RSCs now, they kind of have tried to do a little innovation to really pave their own path forward. But you can imagine if maybe you're a little more introverted or reserved, or you don't even know what next step to take, you finish grad school and you go get a job doing something else. That is something that happens so commonly. And, and the question is, if we really had those numbers, could we see that only this tiny percentage of people that have sort of paved their way to being RSEs actually made it there? Maybe. So on the one hand, it is interesting to think that it's like a very non-traditional and kind of charging forward and, and figuring out your own path. On the other hand, I think we're missing out on a lot of opportunity for people that maybe didn't do that or different groups of people that, that could be RSCs, but just don't even know that's an option. If we look around our community, I don't think there's a lot of diversity. And I think that's a problem and you know we're working on it, but it's a very hard problem to solve. And it's probably rooted in how people kind of stumble on this role in the first place. I think that's a great point. What do we as a community need to be doing? I mean, I think that RSC stories 
really does directly address that, hey, look, you can make a career out of this if you want to, because here are some examples of folks who have come before. What do we need to be doing to advance this profession? So this makes me think of how there are different kinds of leadership. When you kind of look at USRC, the kind of expected leadership is that we have the steering committee. The steering committee is going to work on the official rules and the code of conduct and sort of a top-down approach to managing a community. And I think it's also important to have bottom-up leadership, meaning community members that kind of step up and say like, this would be really fun to do, or it would be really valuable if we just tried this little thing. I actually think it's more so this bottom-up leadership that can be inspiring and really inspire change because people get the sense that like it's more sort of grassroots and they're doing it because they care about it as opposed to doing it because they have to. I think a relevant topic to this is when you're thinking about diversity. So on the one hand, you can like very strategically make diversity initiatives and make probably a lot of people uncomfortable if you approach them and be like, hi, can you come and talk about diversity because you are a diverse person? I think that's the wrong way to do it. I think it's a better approach to make it so that your community feels welcoming to many different kinds of people. And that's not really about like doing something specific for diversity, but it's about making it fun. And I know this probably sounds silly, but I think a lot about like, how can our community on Slack, the events that we do, how can we be having more fun? Because if we're having fun, I feel like that's what's going to attract different kinds of people. I don't think that writing up a mission statement that says that we are super diverse, et cetera, is the way that's going to more successfully do that. I don't know if that makes sense, but. <laughs> I think it makes sense. And I don't think one precludes the other. I think there's certainly opportunity for both reaching out to different demographics. So let me completely change the subject to something fun, because as you said, we need to have more fun. So your love for avocados and dinosaurs is kind of notoriously famous. And I think <laughs> this is the opportunity the world wants to know, uh, where did this come from? <laughs> is this a lifelong thing? Is this a recent development? Oh gosh, when I kind of alluded to having a lot of health issues, I'm the most allergic person. The number of foods that I can eat is tiny. And so whenever I, I introduce a new food, I have to do it very slowly, very tiny amounts, very carefully. And back in grad school, avocados were one of the things that I introduced and they were a lifesaver. One, they're delicious. They're fatty. I really like fatty, rich things. And I was mostly just able to eat like vegetables. So I, I added these avocados to my life and it, <laughs> it was just like angels on clouds and unicorns. I mean, I was on cloud nine because I found something that could actually give me really good nutrition. And I'm serious when I say I'm like made of avocados. I eat a ton of avocados and it keeps my weight up, keeps me happy. So I just love them. And there's no more complicated story than that. They saved me and they're a part of me and they're delicious. You know, it's funny. I never was on sort of like the California put everything on avocado bandwagon, but I'll just peel an avocado and, and just eat it like that. That's sort of what makes me happy. In terms of dinosaurs, <laughs> so I have a pretty famous famous to me, I guess, picture, and I can post it when we share this episode. I got this Halloween mask of a dinosaur. I think it was 2015. 
I used to do a dinosaur impression when I was kind of smaller. I always kind of liked dinosaurs. My best friend growing up was totally obsessed with dinosaurs, but I do a pretty good velociraptor pouncing sort of impression. So I put on this mask and I was prancing around my apartment and my partner saw me and he just started calling me dinosaur. And that is his name for me. I'm not even kidding. Like at home calls me dinosaur. So that sort of over the years, it feels like it's a part of my identity. I've always just identified with being called a dinosaur. I can't say that I know what a dinosaur would feel like. They're a little bit dupey. They can be a little bit vicious at times, but the dinosaur that I've always felt like I am is kind of a little bit silly, you know, has these tiny arms and is compensating for that, still getting by. Because my partner has always just called me dinosaur from that day forward, it just feels like the right way to describe myself. I love dinosaurs. Well, Vanessa, unfortunately, I think that just about runs us out of time. Thanks so much for flipping the script, sitting on the other side of the mic and sharing your story. It's really been a pleasure to get to hear it. And thank you for volunteering to do this. I think it was your idea too. I forget when you asked me, I think it was pretty early on. You said, oh, maybe someday we can do that. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) It's been really fun and a good experience to be on the other side. I hope that listeners that might be students or current RSCs, I hope that if you feel out of place, that you realize that there is a place for you in this community. And you don't have to be like everyone else to be considered an RSC. RSCs are defined by being different. And if you're an RC that's going through a hard time because of COVID or something else, just hang in there and don't be afraid to reach out to others in the community. As someone who can, you know, sit in a corner and program for like three days straight without human contact, it's hard for me to say this, but I've realized that life really is about people. We're here to take care of one another and it's hard to ask for help sometimes, but it's important to try. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Vanessa. It's been a pleasure, and I'll look forward to hearing you as the host on the next RC Stories. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Ian. Thank you.